Welcome to the Renew the Arts podcast, where we discuss the role of art and creativity in the church and in the world. We are Michael Minkoff and Allison Knight, your hosts for this art history theme season three. Our mission at Renew the Arts is to liberate Christian creativity. At renewtheArts.org, you can see how you can get involved in the creative revival that is currently happening in the church. In the last five years, we've given away more than $200,000 in sponsorship value to Christian artists dedicated to their craft and to their faith. If you like what we're doing, please support our efforts by joining our patron community and perhaps by sponsoring a podcast episode. For more details, visit our website or reach out via email. Michael, do we have to do another teaser? I mean, I, I guess not. <laughs> Let's just keep it real. Come on. All right. Uh, this is uh, keeping it realism and impressionism. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. All right. Uh, welcome back. We are going to talk about impressionism and realism today. Mm-hmm. And we have gotten through, we talked about an intro to art history, our approach. We talked about classical age in both eras. We talked about the Renaissance. We talked about the Baroque era and then Romanticism. And now we're going to talk about the dawn of modernism in realism and impressionism. So So, moving backwards a little bit, Romanticism was all about uh, kind of similar to the Baroque era, very emotional, dramatic, theatrical. They were very in love with emotions and portraying them. Um, They did that with movement in their work and color and brushwork. The realist era uh, really was far more concerned with the day-to-day contemporary life and really was this revolt against the exaggeration of romanticism. They were much more down-to-earth. They were traditional in the sense of their, their works appeared more crisp, kind of like the Renaissance and Baroque era. It was highly rendered. It was tight. You didn't see a lot of brushstroke. Uh, it was balanced. It, it was traditional in that sense and that it had the conventions of traditional art that you would have seen in the academies then. But it was not traditional um, in that, again, it was this avant-garde movement against what we've seen in history. And so they, the realist movement, was getting back to day-to-day real life. And we see this depicted in really what we would call genre scenes, um, which we see some of that in the Baroque era with people like Vermeer and Rembrandt. But uh, they would be depicting people in their work environment. There was a lot of commentary around the social classes and dynamics happening within the industrial and commercial revolution during this time. And so we have Gustave Courbet leading this movement, and he, one of his most famous works is called The Stonebreakers. And it's two men bending over breaking stones in their garb, their day-to-day torn-up dirty garb. And they're breaking stones, and they're putting them in baskets out in a field. And there's nothing special. It's not emotional in that, you know, it's intriguing or exciting or it's captivating. It's really kind of boring, Mm -hmm. honestly. But it's a commentary about what life actually looks like for these people. And so the realist movement wanted to do that. They wanted to actually show you what their lives looked like. 
and it wasn't uppity and it wasn't bougie and it wasn't sophisticated. Um, it was rather unsophisticated, almost appearing uneducated. And they were fighting against this representational quality in the two different ways that you could call something representational from the Romantic era. In, in one side, representational with depth and linear perspective and all of these things, the, the realists started to reject that. They had much more flat, much more paint-on-canvas style. But also there was a rejection of the idea that any of these figures needed to represent something larger than themselves. The idea that these workers, who do they represent? What are they like the the toil of humanity, you know, against the, the you know, it's like, no, they're 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 just workers. Like that's mm-hmm. actually just workers in a field or workers breaking stone or whatever. That's what they look like, that's what they mm-hmm. do. Um, there's nothing beyond it. Yeah. And this was happening at the same time as the birth of photography, almost for the same reason. Yeah, they were concerned about capturing real life. Yeah, what was there and nothing more. Yeah. And that there was a manipulation to romanticism, especially in its latter era, uh, in its latter days. Sort of what happened with Baroque toward Rococo. You have Mm -hmm. romanticism also giving in to exoticism and melodrama, and the realists are saying, you know what, that's... That's not what we want. That's mm-hmm. not what we like. And, uh, and that's not real. That's mm-hmm. manipulative. It's, um, it's not going to help anybody. It's not true. Mm-hmm. It's false. Mm-hmm. It's a lie. And so you, in that, you see the movement toward uh, a rejection of artifice and almost a rejection of artifice, artifice by increasing artifice. You're going to look at this and you're going to know it's a painting. You're not going to question whether or not it's a painting or a sculpture or whatever. It's it. You're going to know this is a piece of artifice, and you're going to see it for that. But uh, I'm going to let Dr. Sachs talk about that. If we're going to connect this to modern art, 20th century art, uh, Manet, Edward Manet was a, uh, a younger generation of realism after Gustave Courbet, who founded French realism. Manet was very modern-looking. He looked to the future. He, uh, he was once interviewed, and his painting was often reviled by the, um, the annual exhibitions in Paris because he did things that just weren't acceptable to tradition. What Monet said when he was interviewed about modern art was he said that art need not be illusionistic anymore. We don't have to refer to history or the Renaissance. We just have to paint the modern world. He said it's really just colored patches on a flat surface, which literally means it's just painting. It's nothing else. It's just painting. But realism gave way to photography because if you're going to have photographs, why do you need realistic paintings anymore? Um, it, I, so the flatness of realism and then the movement into Impressionism seems also to be a response to the fact that that part of painting has been taken over by photographic arts where it's like we don't need to have photorealistic paintings because we actually have photographs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And well, it's important to note that the realists weren't just working in France. You know, they were making an impact in England and even into America with artists like uh, Whistler, who actually is a lot more impressionistic, but we will get to that later. But yeah, the realist movement um, definitely was, uh, it really was the start of modernism, though we wouldn't typically think of it as modernism, uh, but it did lead way into Impressionism and that 
Impressionism was similar to realism because they too wanted to depict day-to-day life. But whereas the realist movement was far more concerned with the bare bones of real life, nothing there's nothing special about real life, you know, it's we're peasants or we're working in the home and we're cooking dinner or we're sitting by the window cuz there's light so I can read my book. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was simple, it was down to earth. Whereas Impressionists wanted to depict day-to-day life in the more pleasurable sense. So the Impressionists, um, you know, of course, famous ones are Van Gogh and Monet and Renoir. They wanted to depict the pleasurable aspects of day-to-day life. So we see a lot of paintings of people in Paris at a lounge or an outdoor cafe, and they're, they're drinking and they're laughing and they're dancing and... That's what they loved. They loved the pleasure of a fleeting moment. Mm -hmm. And so I think if you could wrap both movements up, you could almost say fleeting. Mm -hmm. You know, they really are capturing a fleeting moment in time and they're they're making it real to you. Mm -hmm. And the difference from realism to impressionism is that, well, there's a lot of differences, but impressionism uh, really was even more exaggerated on the fleeting moment. So... Their, their works are um, very quick. I mean, their brush, you can tell so easily what's an Impressionist painting because of the brush strokes. It's really fast. Their color is arbitrary, and, and that means basically it's not color you would see in normal life. You know, they might paint the sky purple because it looks nice. <laughs> they wanted it to, to evoke something within you. It wanted it, they wanted it to be aesthetically pleasing to you. And so we see arbitrary color. We even see uh, crop scenes. So, uh, and this is rather, this is new, this is modern. So imagine you're looking at a painting and half of a person or half of the chair is cut off from the canvas. So they're creating this idea that there's life happening outside of this canvas and you're getting a small window into what's happening. So it's that, it's kind of similar to Baroque in that there's that movement aspect uh, it's not balanced. It's very, um, it's, you know, not symmetrical. It's asymmetrical. It's moving beyond what you're seeing. Soup, that's very impressionistic. Mm-hmm. Um, so they weren't concerned with tightly rendered things. Uh, they were just capturing a moment and a pleasing moment. And so you even see, you know, specifically artists like Van Gogh, a lot of impressionists would go out and they would call this en plein air. Mm-hmm. And basically, an artist would go out and sit in plain air and paint. And they'd set up shop and pull out their oils and paintbrushes and they'd paint a landscape. <clears throat> and they would paint the landscape changing. They might do multiple paintings of the sun rising and what it looks like and the wind blowing and what the trees look like. In and, that same location. Yeah, in that same location. They would just capture the whole day. And so the Impressionists. They, they loved that. They loved the dif- the difference um, just in one day of a fleeting moment. Yeah, so with modernism, as we're about to move into, you obviously have a massive fragmentation that occurs. Mm. Um, that fragmentation began to occur, I think, even with romanticism because of its emphasis on the individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, we talked about this, how the individuals are exiting civilization and they're feeling like civilization as a collective uh, program had failed to deliver. 
that whether you're talking about the state or the university or the church, we've put our trust in these collective institutions and they've all become cities of corruption over time. And realism obviously draws from that and impressionism draws from that, especially in terms of the individual uh, emphasis, the emphasis mm -hmm. on the individual perception and even uh, almost a subjectivism. Um, and phenomenology is becoming a really big deal around this time as well in the mid 1800s to late 1800s. The idea that, I mean, you have with Kant, the idea that the objective is, is an illusion, that there is an objective, but if you think that you're able to grasp it, he says, you're wrong because all you ever know is what you know and you are finite and you are limited, et cetera, et cetera. And so who will ever know if we've actually grasped an objective truth? And you see this idea working itself out among the artists. When I first looked at Impressionist paintings, I thought the use of pastels indicated to me sort of a soft and mm -hmm. like aesthetically pleasing, but more like um, not serious. This yeah. is not serious Frilly. art. Frilly. Frilly, exactly. Um, almost like Rococo. Mm -hmm. But uh, then I heard from Dr. Sachs. So the Impressionists come along as the probably the most radical artistic stylistically, artistic movement stylistically of the 19th century because they weren't like anything traditional. They weren't like uh, the, the Renaissance at all. They were about, purely about color. Many people like to say that they're emotional painters and they might have been emotional painters, but their art's not supposed to be emotional. It's optical. It's, it's very scientific in how they analyze light. So they were taking more of a phenomenological, meaning how it appears to you approach to optics mm -hmm. and that these paintings actually have great scientific value as well. That there's that there is a there's a intrinsic subjectivism to them. Like this is the way the light looked to me at this time from my stance. But if I were standing in a different place on a different day with different light, how different this scene could be. And there's a there's a message there, I think, to people that one of the problems with the collective program has been that they've been a, trying to achieve absolutes uh, by compromising together a bunch of individual visions. But in reality, that, that idea of objectivity is an illusion. It's false. That the only thing that any individual actually has is his own perspective on the world. That's what they believed. And in purely human terms, that is correct. Um, and, but in this case, it actually went all the way down to the roots. Mm. For the first time, it went all the way down to the roots that um, the Impressionists even began to seek to exit themselves from any kind of organized communities. You have the rise of bohemian lifestyles, right? Of, of just a wandering, unrooted, unlanded lifestyle for a lot of artists and the rise of what I would say you could call the cult of the artist. The idea of artists that we currently have, of this sort of uh, spiritual muse who is um, unbounded, unruled, unruly, um, the, the iconoclast in every sense, the, the cultural revolutionary, um, the rebel, this idea I think started to arise at this time because the Impressionists even, and the Realists too, they rebelled against even art schools, mm -hmm. like even the schools of art that they were in, which 
you can see the fruit of that coming to bear in the modernist movement to a much greater degree. But even in realism and impressionism, they were rebelling against the quote-unquote salons, like mm-hmm. the the salon method for uh, for painting and all the rules of the salon method. Mm-hmm. They were rebelling against that, and that's a fruit of the individualism actually that that started to arise in the Romantic movement. You can see it becoming more and more fragmented, more and more subjective as the as the eras went on. Until eventually, we're going to talk about it next episode with modernism. It's absolute fragmentation to the point of meaninglessness, like to the point of of absolute abstraction, absolute uh, dislocation and disillusionment and cynicism. <laughs> you know? Precisely, yeah. yes. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, before we get there, I would love to briefly talk about an American painter named Mary Cassatt. And she's probably not very familiar, although if you looked up her name, you might recognize some of her works. Um, she is an impressionist female painter, so shout out to the ladies because we've only been talking about male artists, which, side note, is very common uh, in art history. You won't find a lot of female artists mentioned. And so we're going to talk about a female artist. And Mary Cassatt uh, was an impressionist painter. She actually was friends with uh, Degas, who many probably know of. He painted the Female, yeah, the ballerinas, and they're beautiful and famous. And Mary Cassatt, actually, on the note of academies and salons, Mary Cassatt was because she was a woman was not allowed to study in salons, and so she learned from masters like Degas, and she practically trained herself privately, and is a phenomenal impressionist painter and um, had a huge impact as. Is actually one of the you know major three women in the impressionist movement, and she is really well known for her depictions of mother and child, which kind of is a you know step back to the Renaissance Madonna and child, Mary and Jesus. So, kind of that familiarity carrying out within her works. But I want to talk about her piece called "The Boating Party" because I think it's a really good representation of impressionism. And uh, she painted this in 1893, and it's a woman dressed in, she's wearing a really lovely dress, and she has a child in her arms, and they're on a boat, and it looks like they're heading to another part of the land, and uh, a man's, you know, rowing the boat for them. And, you know, there's so much at play here uh, that shows Impressionism, but I think even just in interpretation, you can, you can kind of interpret this piece in various ways, which I think was kind of, in, in the modernist approach, there's always this underlying meaning. You know, it, there's this, you're seeing something, but what's actually going on beneath. And Mary Cassatt, you know, it's, it's this woman, and, and honestly, the dimensions are a little off. Anatomically, things look weird. The child's pretty flat. The water looks flat. But it's also this super bright blue, which is not the typical blue you're going to see in the water. A very bright yellow boat. You know, so there's these like extreme contrasts in color. We don't see the man's face. Um, so we're not really sure, you know, he's probably just a normal day-to-day worker rowing boats. And the the sails kind of cut off, you know, so it kind of gives us that idea that there's there's more happening outside of what you can see on this canvas. 
and quick brush strokes. You know, this isn't tightly rendered. It looks like it was not super quickly done, like she sat outside and painted this, but uh, it's impressionistic and you can see her brush strokes. You can almost imagine her imagine her painting this, which I also love about the impressionists. You can it's so easy to picture them painting their works because their brush strokes are so vivid. But I think Mary Cassatt, you know, there there is something we can maybe interpret from this because she does play a lot on the mother-child dynamics, and so you start to wonder, is this a commentary of the times? You know, where is where are the husbands in her piece, in her pieces? Is this her rejection against male authority because she is a woman and she isn't allowed to really partake in the art schools and be trained as an artist because she's a woman? And this is her kind of revolting in the, against that in a more nonchalant way? Or is this really a commentary about the lack of male influence, you know, in a lot of single mothers or a lot of men off, you know, working or, uh, and they're not home much. And so the weight of childbearing and raising up is on women. And so you start to wonder where's, where's the male figure in, in this painting and in all of her paintings. And so I think it really encapsulate, encapsulates the, the impressionist time of arbitrary color, fleeting moments, things happening outside of what you can see, but also reflective of the day-to-day -day life. This is probably this woman's real life. She's going to town maybe to pick up something or she's dressed up. Maybe she's going to meet her husband. You know, who knows? And so I think that's where Impressionism is traditional in that there's more to be... There's, they're, still communi they're still communicating something, mm -hmm. but they're, they are still concerned with the aesthetic and how you're receiving it as the audience um, who's viewing their piece. Right. It seems like there are actually a, a large, or a larger number, or a growing number of uh, female artists mm. that are in, in this period of time. Yeah, and um, more to come. I mean, more, they, it more just come, booms yeah. in the modern era. It does. It does, which is interesting because you wonder why exactly were there not artists. Before or were they just not they were, remembered? Yeah. You know what I mean. They were, yeah. The only other before this, the, I, I mean, you probably know a few others, but the, one of the most famous is Sappho, the mm. Greek poet. Uh, she was, you know, like 600 BC or something. You know, but that, mm -hmm. <laughs> other than that, mm -hmm. that's one of the most famous in the writing. But then at this period of time, you have the Bronte sisters, mm -hmm. you uh, in the in the Gothic, you know, realm, and you have Emily Dickinson, mm -hmm. and you have. Um, a lot of different authors, actually, um, some of whom write under uh, male pen names like George Eliot, who was attempting to, I think, avoid the prejudice against women. Right. Um, because there were a lot of women who didn't feel like they could even be published uh, as women. And a lot of men that were publishers and in control of these things wouldn't allow that, um, no matter how good the material was. And it's definitely the case. You look at Emily Dickinson's stuff now. I mean, she was far ahead of her time. You look at the Bronte sisters, they were far ahead of their time and um, had a massive influence, actually, and continue to have influence in uh, writing and poetry. And then you have Mary Cassatt, who I didn't even know about until you uh, brought her up, although I did know her paintings I just didn't know her name. I had seen a couple of her paintings. The most famous one uh, that I know of from her is the one of the mother uh, washing her baby. The baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, what 
why do you think that's the case? Why do you think, I mean, there are a lot of different possible explanations, but why do you think it's the case that at this time you start to have a, a larger number of recognized female artists? Great question. <laughs> I don't think I have the exact answer. I think a large part of it is to do with the revolutions. I think people, I think society is just modernizing. I think with the industrial revolution and invention and consumerism, and I think the, you know, even just the, the transitions and philosophies of the time. I mean, people are becoming more independent. Like you said, we have a lot of avant-garde movements happening, and I think women are partaking in that, mm -hmm. you know? We're kind of done with these traditional ways and we have talents and it's, you know, and the male artists recognize that, mm -hmm. you know, you, you look at people like Vigila Brun, who was the portrait painter for Marie Antoinette, you know, she was recognized within the monarchy for being an exceptional painter. Mm -hmm. And there's always been those women, but I think as societies just revolutionizing and people are becoming far more independent and innovative and stepping out and doing what's never been done before. I think women are almost gaining confidence, you know, to, to do the same. And the problem is that historically it's the male dominance has been the reigning figure within the arts, within the academies, the critics, you know, the people with wealth, you know, it's just, the, the male was obviously the hierarchy, mm -hmm. patriarchal. So I think just as society's changing, mm -hmm. I think there's this growing confidence in all people to kind of be innovative and we're stepping out. And I think that's almost, it's sparking something within the women of the time and they're starting to voice it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, even just the fact that you have a woman, Mary Cassatt's representing a woman and child there's no husband figure in her work, rarely, mm -hmm. if at all any. Which is ambiguous as to what that means. Right. What does that exactly mean? But, I, but perhaps it's that there are less male figures. And so women are stepping up and they're taking, they're taking the leadership roles. And so there's, they're stepping out more. They're doing what needs to be done. They're mm -hmm. gaining a voice. And um, so I don't know. Those are some of my thoughts. I... I think too, there's just a lot more exposure, you know, with photography happening. I mean, the innovation is allowing for greater exposure of what's part, what's happening in society. Mm. And so, but his you know, and, and let's say Vagine Lebrun, she might've been written about or word of mouth spread about her because she was Marie Antoinette's portraitist, right. but she was just like any other woman. What other reason would she be talked about? Because women weren't being talked about. Right. And so I think with the innovative society, there is more exposure to people um, in society. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's probably paying, playing a role too. And, and someone like Mary Cassatt had connections. Things are happening, you know, and, and she's, part, she's doing what she needs to do to have a name. But there's also a breakdown of the hierarchy of patronage mm -hmm. at this time. Yes. Which... I think is another part of this. To explain it to people, in because patronage is a really, really important concept. And by the end of the 1700s, patronage as a concept for supporting the arts 
is largely defunct. And you still have structures that are, you know, tastemakers, gatekeeping mm-hmm. structures. Yeah, there's right? still the academy. Like the salon the and the academy. But you can see with Impressionism that there is a revolt against salons and academies as gatekeepers, and people are producing work and selling work even mm-hmm. outside of that patronage. Mm-hmm. And that allows a greater freedom for a larger number of voices that might have been rejected just out of the gate. Right? I mean, if, if you're in the 1700s and you go to your major publishing house in London and you say, I want to publish this book, they say, we don't publish women's books. Right. But if, if you don't have to go through a gatekeeper, if you can produce your work and all the work that's being done that's worth anything is already being made on the fringes anyway, then what does it matter if you're a woman or a recluse or mm-hmm. a whatever? It doesn't matter. Like at that point, it's it's it stops mattering as much whether or not you go through the, quote, proper channels. And I don't know that that's the full reason. I think a lot of what you said in terms of modernizing society, the fragmentation of the social structure um, and all of those things, which has a dark side too. Yes. I mean, it really does have a dark side. Uh, but there are some positives from it as well. And I think that there are positives in the breakdown of the patronage system because the patronage system itself had proven itself corrupt, especially at this time, where people who were already in power were giving their own uh, opportunities. And that was it. Mm -hmm. They were only giving people who were like them opportunities. Mm -hmm. And if you weren't like us and you don't play by our rules, then you don't have opportunities, no matter what kind of talent, what kind of value, what kind of significance you might have. And that was really what led to the downfall uh, that does lead to the downfall of gatekeeping institutions in any generation. When they become self-seeking, self-serving, and corrupt, people say, well, then we're going to have to produce outside of you because you're no longer actually doing what you were designed to do, which is increase the quality of work and make it easier for the larger populace to enjoy fine, high quality art, mm-hmm. you know, without having to have discernment on the of, of their own, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to go to 10 years of school so that I can have the discernment to determine for myself what I should and shouldn't receive. And that's the danger of not having gatekeeping institutions because mm-hmm. that does put more of the responsibility on each individual. And I think with this with this realm with the with the impressionist uh, era and the realist era you start to see this idea of beauty being in the eye of the beholder mm-hmm. to a much greater degree mm-hmm. and this it, so you have the cult of the artist and the rise of beauty being in the eye of the beholder both coming from this breakdown of the gatekeeping institutions and of increased fragmentation of the culture movement, right? The culture movement ceases to be a collective program and becomes an individualist program at this point. And that works both ways. You have individualism in the artist, but then also that leads to an individualism in the audience as well. Um, so anyway, those are some yeah. so those are some thoughts. It, it, it's hard to say exactly. There's probably a lot of factors that go into it, but it is important to, yes. you know, to note that yeah. that's what's going on. And just... You know, I took a woman in art course in my undergrad, and it really is just fascinating how so many women were left out of art history books. They mm-hmm. just weren't talked about. and Even the ones were, that were there even, before. Right. Yeah. You know, they might be briefly. Vigila Brun is mentioned briefly, you know, but she's not nearly talked about like someone like Picasso, mm-hmm. you know, and... And that's fine. 
it's what it is. But it's it really is surprising how many exceptional female artists who were trained, who were academic, you know, in convention, who could paint you no, know, just as great, and because of their because they were women, they were left out. It wasn't a priority. It becomes a self fulfilling prophecy concerning minorities in in any case uh, like and by minority I don't mean in numbers I just mostly mean as far as a balance of power are you going to have as much influence in any particular era into the future if you're not listened to in your particular era mm-hmm. maybe not and then it's like then it justifies later generations to say oh you weren't that important mm-hmm. in a lot of ways it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm. you weren't that important and we know you weren't that important because you're not that important mm-hmm. you know <laughs> and like, then funny enough you know all of the artists who weren't important in their time ended up being famous right in anyway other, van gogh yeah everyone exactly. despised him and He's one of the greatest artists of all time. No. And everyone knows him. Right. And and that's also just the irony of how tragic so many artists' lives were mm-hmm. and during their time. And especially at this time. And yeah. This is this exactly. is really one of the yeah. and like we said, with the cult of the artist rising, one of the parts of the cult of the artist is the self-destructive move towards like a su- suicidal tendencies mm-hmm. or depressiveness mm-hmm. or any of these kinds of totally. things. The starving artist concept. Well, because again, you know, if you're an artist within the patron system, you're not a starving artist. Right. But that's how you got your name. That's exactly. <laughs> but if you're an artist outside the patron system and you're not going through those gatekeeping institutions, all it makes sense that you would have trouble doing art and making a living from mm-hmm. it. Um, so, so yeah. The lesson is that it's important for us to support great artists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> which anyway, is what we do. Renew the arts. <laughs> <laughs> Promo. <laughs> right. Well, we are talking about modernism next, so. Yeah. Fasten your seatbelts. Right. Um, <laughs> all right. We're going to finish this episode with another song from Phil Hodges. And thank you for putting up with our technical difficulties. Uh, last week, we recorded a couple of episodes, but we recorded them at RTS with some lapel mics in a very echoey room, and they just didn't sound as good as we wanted them to. So um, we made the sacrifice. Allison particularly made the sacrifice <laughs> to come back up to the project studio and re-record this episode. So we've already actually done this yes, once. Yes, round two. A version of this. And so thank this you very much. This one was a little different than our it, first. So. It was. And I think it was better. Yeah. So, you know, God's grace in that always. Uh, that <laughs> uh, There was one time when I was working on a song for Songs for Friends on Physic. And the computer farted out on me, and I lost the entire uh, oh, track, man. like everything. I lost everything, all the work I had done. And I had, I had mixed it and chopped it and cut it, and I had it exactly where I wanted pretty much. And then it just dropped everything. And I had the raw files on my hard drive, but I had to piece them all together from scratch. It was a disaster. <laughs> so, And the whole entire time, I just thought, you know, Lord, you wanted this to happen yes. because the original mix I had done, you weren't happy with. And so yeah. this one will be better and you've given me an opportunity to to do it again. So anyway, we're, we're thankful for God's providence and for your patience. Yes, and, uh, thank you. We hope you enjoyed the song.
What you just heard was Lagrima by Francisco Tarrega, Spanish guitarist and composer born in 1852 and died in 1909. Lagrima is Spanish for teardrop. 